Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 1st. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... And we begin sort of our data detective mission. Could you go out on the Internet? How much information can you find about people? And one of the easiest targets is actually college-age people. That's Latanya Sweeney from Carnegie Mellon University talking about computer privacy and privacy in general. She's our guest this week, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Latanya Sweeney is an associate professor of computer science, technology, and policy at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. She's the founder and director of that institution's Laboratory for International Data Privacy. And she's considered to be one of the nation's leaders in creative ways to protect privacy in an increasingly porous world. She was recently interviewed by Chip Walter on a program called The World Revealed, broadcast on WRCT, the radio station of Carnegie Mellon University. The show features long-form interviews with scientists and others talking about how the world works. Chip was a guest on the SIAM podcast on January 3rd when he talked about his most recent book, Thumbs, Toes, and Tears, a look at how the evolution of six physical traits that are unique to humans shape who we are. Thumbs, Toes, and Tears is a Scientific American Book of the Month Club selection. Chip also contributes to Scientific American Mind and Scientific American magazines. He profiled Latanya Sweeney in the July issue of Scientific American. Here is an edited version of the conversation that Chip and Dr. Sweeney had on WRCT. You know, there's a famous or, or infamous quip you know, that Scott McNeely, who was the founder and, and is the CEO of Sun Microsystems, made a few years ago, and he said, uh, privacy is dead. Get over it. You know, is privacy dead? Well, let's say it's critically wounded, but it still has life. But more importantly, we can't afford for it to actually die. Um, it's essential for us to be able to maintain privacy. We may not be able to continue it the way we knew it. That is, the world 20 years from now is probably not going to have individual privacy the way we had it as children so or 20 years earlier but there's some fundamental things about privacy and fairness that have to be restored and have to be protected so what has happened you know what's what's really changed that's made the made it much more difficult to hang on to our privacy well there are three things i think that really came into play one is technology so in some sense one of the best protections we had about on privacy 15 20 years ago wasn't actually the laws and practices, but it was the absence of technology as we know it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, data is so ubiquitous, and getting a copy of it and transferring it around the world is, is just a matter of seconds. Or one of the things you found, right, is that we kind of leak information and don't realize we leaked it. That's you know, true. It kind of proliferates and and travels. That's true. And that sort of gets to the second cornerstone of sort of why things have really changed. And it has to do with with the fact that there are these data collections everywhere. It's just cheaper to collect data. It doesn't really cost anything anymore. The the cost of disk drive storage space is sort of approaching zero. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy to capture the information and then just keep it. One of the the way that's played out in our policies, though, has also been that whenever we've faced national problems, our answer has been to turn to data collections. So we've actually, on a federal and major, on a, on a government level, actually sort of pushed the ball fa- faster against privacy mm-hmm. by reacting to public problems by saying, we don't know the answer, let's start a data collection. So 
I'll give you some examples. You may remember the deadbeat dads problem, as it was called, mm-hmm. when parents weren't being financially responsible for their children. When that got to the congressional level, um, Congress didn't really know how to solve it. So instead, they started a new database called the Database of New Hires. Mm-hmm. And all of us are in it, whether we have, if you work, whether you have children or not. Um, and the information is automatically taken from payroll information and given to the database. Right. And so, so the, the, you're not saying necessarily the intent was to invade our privacy, but the result is that it makes it easier for our privacy to be invaded. Right. And then public sentiment, you know, is also, I think, also helped push the ball, too. And that is that whenever... If the answer to a, an immediate need for uh, from us was basically more data or some privacy invasive technology, we tended to elect to have it. Mm-hmm. So coming into from the nineties, eighties, uh, and nineties was this idea that gee, adding video uh, in high crime areas or putting video in lots of places would make us feel safe or better, and so we tended to opt for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, closed gate communities opted for more security around those communities. Um, and to live in that environment. So by the time 9-11 came and all of a sudden, so in some sense, the country goes to into a crisis that says, oh, my God, of course we want to be safe. The idea that we would give up our privacy in in those moments, whether we perceived it as short term or or even maybe to some extent long term, is on, is the way that that Americans had been making decisions. But now sort of the pendulum swings the other way and we're left with the consequences of these privacy decisions and how can we actually keep a democracy alive in in the face of so much privacy invasion. It seems like what I'm hearing you say is that we, we've elected kind of naively to proliferate all this information about ourselves uh, or to gather information, you know, not necessarily in a uh, big brother sort of way, but nevertheless, it's there. And, and therefore people who maybe we don't want to get this information or savvy enough to find it can't. So you, you've had programs you've developed like that'll scrub this information out of databases at hospitals, for example, or, uh, you have de-identification software and you have something called K anonymity. And I don't know, you had, you had one that got a lot of attention called Identity Angel. Um, maybe we could start with that one and, and then talk a little bit about some of the things you're doing at the lab. Sure. Well, what we do in the lab is we try to look at technologies that sort of are directly um, aimed or, or privacy problems that that society's having and then try to look at the technology and the problem in sort of a new way and develop new technologies or technology add-ons that sort kind of, of like a, a detective agency. <laughs> yeah. Like a data yeah, detective yeah. agency. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, Your gumshoe. <laughs> and to introduce uh, sort of solutions so society can enjoy the new technology, its benefits, and at the same time have privacy. So one of them that we became very interested in was Identity Angel. We uh, had been looking at some statistics coming out of the Federal Trade Commission that showed an increase in uh, credit card thefts. And they showed statistics that uh, tended to show at that time people uh, who are basically college age were among the highest victims. Mm-hmm. And being in a college university, we, we took quite a lot of note about that. Like, how could, how, why is that happening? How could that be? Right. And we began sort of our data detective mission and, and sort of said, well, how, could you go out on the internet? And how much information can you find about people? 
And one of the easiest targets is actually college-aged people because they're used to having a lot of information about them. They've exchanged a lot of information about themselves online. They have um, web pages or Facebook pages or what have right, you. Right. And so as a result, there's a lot of information about them. And so the question was, how easy would it be to impersonate them in credit card fraud? And so then when looking at what it takes to get a credit card in someone's name, it's scary. It doesn't take very many pieces of information. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so the question was, could we write a program that could go mine, around, mine the web looking for information so that if it found the right combination of information on any individual that is enough to get a credit card in the person's name, it could then figure out how to alert the person and let them know uh, that they're vulnerable and which information they might want to change or move or modify. And so what did you find whenever, I mean, you, you found that it was pretty easy to... Yeah, we found, we were expecting to find few, but we found tens of thousands of the of ways, tens of thousands of instances of people's credit card information sufficient to get credit cards in their name. Right. So um, you kind of played the bad guy in, in a yeah, sense. You know, yeah. you, you, you went out and... and, and gathered the information about these people relatively easily, tens of thousands of people. Right. And you didn't steal their identities, but you could have <laughs> right. uh, if and, you wanted to. And it's funny that you said it that way because <laughs> so the first thing that – so the way the program works is once it finds an, enough information about you that it could get a credit card in your name, it figures out whether or not it can email you, and then it sends you an email message. So the funniest are the first couple of hundred of people – who actually got messages from us that was, and people would turn around threatening that threatened to sue Carnegie Mellon saying, Oh my God, you're stealing our identity. <laughs> and right, the, right. people really did not understand at the time, you know, what was going that on. You were being the good guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that we were being the good guy. Say, Hey, we're just trying to help you out here. Yeah. Are we just being a little naive and assuming that the world was the way it used to be? I mean, I've got two teenage daughters and they've got Facebook pages and, uh, you know, they, they go, Oh no, dad, you don't have to worry about it. But we really should. Yeah, you definitely should because in some sense you have to kind of think about how much information was documented on every minute of your life. Now, for most people who are adults, you know, the times that you skipped school and the times you didn't eat your lunch in the lunchroom in, in lunchroom cafeteria and the time you stuck your nose your finger in your nose Mm-mm. inappropriately when nobody you thought no one was looking, <laughs> all of those incidents and many more serious ones uh, did not get recorded. And suppose you, even as a young adult, had found yourself in financial trouble and then ended up declaring bankruptcy. And then after your 10-year wait period, you, you sort of got new credit again or credit opportunity again. Mm-hmm. Um, those were all things that in, for older adults, that's the life that we knew. But for today, you have to think in terms of, gee, oh, my God, in some sense, there's a document of almost every minute of a child's life from the time they're born till the time they die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's no forgetting and there's no forgiving. And so you could find out, even though your credit record may be cleared after 10 years after a bankruptcy, it would still be possible somewhere it's recorded That's right. and available. Right. That, that, and somebody looking to that. give you big credit may not be, forget, won't, isn't necessarily always obliged to forget that 10 year period. They can go back now in a way that they couldn't before. Right. Whereas in the old days, it would have just been sitting in some vault on a piece yeah. of paper that would have been much more difficult to get a, your hands on. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way I would think, the best analogy I have for sort of describing the shifting that's happening is uh, sort of that old saying that that you used to hear, go west, young man. 
Right. And because the, the Go Western man was a saying that sort of said, if you messed up on the East Coast, you could go to the West Coast and start over again. Right. Well, even by the time, um, people who were older adults, by the time we were growing up, that it was no longer quite true, but right. there were still remnants of this notion of you, you pay, sort of pay your penance and then you go on in life. But nowadays, there is no West Coast for us, um, for the, for the there's generation no coming from us. Yeah. yeah, there's no escape anywhere you go. Your information can, can follow you. Yeah. Well, when you were talking about video surveillance, that sort of thing, it, 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 uh, you know, reminded me of another project that you worked on, uh, which was really interesting. And, and basically this, this came out of, uh, work I think you were doing for the federal government. It was about video surveillance, but the idea was to, to hide the identity of the people that were being, you know, watched uh, and and recorded. So tell a little bit about that. Well, I think the, there are many examples of this, but let me give you one quick example to think about it. It's what I would call the law enforcement catch-22 problem. So there's a group of people, say, in a room like we are here. Let's say some incident happened out in the hallway, and mm-hmm. Carnegie Mellon had a uh, videotape angled on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not, it, so when the police come, they, they, they know that the videotape couldn't possibly show the incident in the hallway, mm-hmm. but, and so Carnegie Mellon says, well, I'm not going to give you the videotape of the people in the room because that's it's irrelevant. irrelevant. Right. And the law enforcement says, oh no, that's relevant because what if somebody was giving a signal to somebody out in the hall? Or what if somebody was looking out in the hall at the time the incident happened? We'd have a witness. Right. So now law enforcement in, is really in a catch-22. On the one hand, if they could get the video, they'd know whether it was useful and could get benefits from it, but they can't get the video because of a sort of a privacy violation that they, they otherwise shouldn't have. So how do you generally solve this problem? That is, more generally, as video cameras are being placed in lots of public spaces, um, and at the same time, you don't want people being tracked by matching up um, their identities to their to their um, driver's license, mm-hmm. so that you don't want the situation where law enforcement, if face recognition worked perfectly, could literally track people throughout public spaces all the time. Right. So how do you restore some of this need for a search warrant before they something goes wrong? They only need a search warrant. So what, the, what our solution was was what we call face de-identification. That is, given a video clip, we basically take the images, the faces out of the video clip. We detect them in real time. We sort of peel off the face, produce an average face, and then we morph that face back into the video. So when you look at the video, you see people having the same expressions they had before, doing the same thing, activities they were doing, except the face that you see on their shoulders aren't their faces. Right, right. So you're actually seeing the face of someone that doesn't exist anywhere. That's right. And that we can prove that if you did have, you know, a complete driver's license database and everyone was in it, you still wouldn't be able to um, confidently identify the person. Right. Face recognition Based software face. Would, would, would not. But if if there was a crime or there was some strong reason why you would need to see the real face that was there, it would be possible right. to see it. That's right. But, but it seems like one of the things you're saying is happening is that the more information that's out there, the more law enforcement also will sort of gather it in and say, well, you know, better safe than sorry. So yeah. we may as well have it, but that compromises our, our own personal. Right. And privacy. it's not to say that all of us Americans are running around doing illegal activities and doing something wrong and therefore right. we have something to hide. It's not that it's the secondary use of the data. That is, I might not mind so much law enforcement watching me completely in public space, but 
Um, but then when that data then, but I don't have a way to control it or limit it there. Right. It could then be used for something else later. For example, um, suppose I'll get a discount on my medical insurance or my medical insurance premium gets set based on how much exercise they think I do. Mm-hmm. So they might, you can imagine, we could think in terms of in the future, automated technology that takes it. Take, would take an Im, take these images and try to figure out or calculate how much activity do you have and then be able to report that. Since you don't control the data, we'd be able to report it to your insurance company. That's a hypothetical example, but it's an example of how data that you, uh, you may not feel too uncomfortable about letting go of in, in one point can come back around and really hurt you. I'll give you another example would be uh, loyalty cards like at the supermarket. Right, right, right. So, you know, we all go to the local Giant Eagle here in Pittsburgh is our big chain, and we use our loyalty card and we get cheaper groceries. And you say, well, what's the – I don't care if they know what I purchase and so forth. But there have been some really interesting issues that have already come up from the use of loyalty card information. Um, There's one situation where they tried to use – uh, correlate the amount of junk food that you purchase to your medical claims data on mm-hmm. in insurance to, or and also there was another one correlating junk food to absenteeism at work trying to find out whether or not there were some of these patterns you know there are think tanks all kinds of uh, organizations out there that deal with computer security and privacy and and those sorts of issues what what makes uh, your lab different well, like you said, um, there are many people who do work in computer security. Um, one of the differences between computer security and sort of the privacy work that I do, computer security tends to say, I'm going to, um, that there's some information that you have in a vault, and I'm going to make a vault electronically so that only the person who's authorized to get it can get it, and they're going to have to authenticate themselves that they are the person they, they say they are and that they have the rights to access the data and so forth. The kind of problems that we've been talking about, though, is data freely given away. It's not in a vault. I don't have control over it. Right. But in some sense, I have to give it in order to exist in society or in order to get the discount at the store. Mm-hmm. And so the real question then uh, is how do you solve the problem in that space? You know, Ron Rivest of RSA fame, the R of the mm-hmm. RSA fame, mm-hmm. so, uh, had a great saying to me once. He said, you know, um, the problem with trying to solve these problems with laws is that laws move as a function of years and technology moves as a function of months. Right. And that's really true. Um, and so I think the long-term uh, view of our work has got to be that computer scientists and engineers who are developing new technologies have to learn to do this in the technologies they build. I mean, that's really our, our long-term promise because – it's so much cheaper and easier for society if the new technology rolls out with the privacy controls in them, and then techn- then society can decide which ones to turn off or on. But historically, we've built technology only from the use standpoint, some new interesting use, some new use of new ability, and we rush to push it out the door. Um, Scott McNeely, I would argue is sort of in that camp in the sense that Sun at that time primarily made database systems. Right. The idea that people were concerned about, uh, from a privacy standpoint, the amount of information going into databases, and he wanted access to databases somewhat ubiquitously available, um, is a little, it's, it's like taking a technology and running really fast and saying, well, forget privacy, it's dead, get out of the way, right. <laughs> there's right. a train right. coming. we got a job to do here. And, but I think, you know, since then, many people have recognized that, well, you know what, we can do these same things, but we can put some privacy controls on them as well. Perhaps you can tell us uh, where people can learn more about your work? 
Yeah. More about the lab. Uh, yep. I'll website. give you a quick URL. Okay. It's privacy.cs.cmu.edu. Okay. All right. And so anyone wants to know more about what Latanya's up to, uh, check that out. And uh, once again, uh, we've been talking with Latanya Sweeney. She's founder and director of the Data Privacy Lab at Carnegie Mellon University, and she's considered one of the nation's leading experts in creative ways to protect privacy. The profile of Latanya Sweeney by Chip Walter is available free on our website. Just go to www.siam.com, hit the link for magazine, and go to the Insights section of the July issue. The article is entitled, A Little Privacy, Please. We'll be right back. Wandering around? Visit Scientific American Mobile Edition on your web-enabled mobile device. Go to wap.siam.com for the latest science news and analysis plus daily trivia questions. That's wap.siam.com on your mobile's browser. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, in a British University proof-of-concept project... Researchers built a car out of old magazines and newspapers. Story two, two MIT students have come up with a plan for harvesting the motion of people in crowds to generate electricity. Story three, four people were killed last week when Iraqis celebrated their country's first Asian Cup soccer championship by shooting guns in the air. And story four, a replica of an articulated false toe found on a mummy in the Cairo Museum will be tested to see if it's functional, which would make it the oldest functional prosthetic yet known. Time's up. Story four is true. British researchers will test a replica of the mummy's toe on volunteers missing their right big toe to see if the device aids in walking. If it does, it would lend credence to the idea that the toe is the oldest known functional prosthetic. For more, check out the July 30th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. Story three is true. Four Iraqis were killed. At least 17 were wounded by celebratory gunfire after the soccer victory. Until guns and rifles are developed from which bullets can achieve escape velocity and reach orbit and not be brought back to the Earth's surface by gravity, sports fans around the world, you have got to stop shooting off guns and rifles when your team wins something. And story two is true. MIT students have developed a plan for what they call crowd farming to generate electricity from human motion. In a train station, for example, a responsive system made of blocks under the floor would be slightly pushed down by the milling masses. As the blocks slipped past each other, they'd act like a dynamo, which converts energy of motion into electric current. The idea won the Japanese Wholesome Foundation Sustainable Construction Competition. The students were inspired, they say, by Thomas Edison, who had a turnstile in his house that visitors had to pass through, and when they did, they helped pump water into his holding tank. All of which means that story one about a car built out of recyclable magazines and newspapers is totally bogus because what is true is that researchers at Warwick University in England built a car mostly out of vegetable products. According to the Australian Herald Sun newspaper, the tires are made from potatoes, the body is made out of hemp, and it runs on fuel from fermented wheat and sugar beets. Despite its vegetative origins, the car, which can reach speeds of about 150 miles per hour, is reportedly not a lemon. (laughs) 
Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.